We, I was going to do this as the uh, Millennial Kingdom Part 2. However, as I started writing the slides, it kind of morphed into this one that I'm naming Declaring the End from the Beginning. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Like I said a couple weeks ago, John the Revelator only spent like five verses on a millennial era. I take that to assume that John understood that his readers would have been familiar with the text of the Old Testament and be able able to extrapolate what was going to occur in that thousand year period and he didn't need have the need to flesh it out. But we have a cool verse here in Isaiah 46 9 it says remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God's outside of time, and this is, in fact, the name Yahweh means the eternal one. It's one of his defining attributes, somebody that's outside of time, that sees the end from the beginning, and not only sees it, but declares it, it says. So he's declaring this information to us about the end, and he's declaring it from the beginning. Now, the word beginning in Hebrew is Bereshit, which is the name of the book of Genesis in Hebrew. So anytime you say the beginning or in the beginning, it's actually the same name as the book of Genesis. So in, in essence, he's saying, I've declared all of this from Genesis. And we'll go into some of the things that I think he was declaring to us. Maybe not on the plain interpretation of the text, but on a deeper layer of the text. When Jews approach the text of the Bible, they approach it at four levels. The first level is called the Peshat, which in Hebrew means the plain, the plain interpretation. And so for all your youth as a Jewish boy, you would be familiarizing yourself with the plain interpretation of the text. And then you would go on to what they call remez, which is clues, and then midrash, which is relying on the commentary of the sages. And then the deepest level is called the sod, or the hidden level, that they all analyze this text in, this, in these ways. And in fact, Christ, after he was resurrected on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, says, and he was talking with those fellows that he didn't realize he was the re resurrected Lord. And it says, in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things that concerned himself. So beginning at Moses, Moses would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's where he started. But then he eventually went to the prophets as well. And the Psalms can be included in the prophets and brought out this deeper layer of the text to these folks who probably been mostly concerned with the plain level of the text. Because the plain level of the text of the Old Testament never comes out and says, you know, I'm going to have a that's going to come at this time, he's going to die, and then three days resurrect, just real clearly like that. But it does speak on it in a hidden way about all of those things. So beginning at Moses, he expounded, and so that's where we'll, where we'll start today I'm in, in Genesis chapter 37. Now before we do, the technical term in Christianity for this type of understanding is called typology. Dr. Anderson at Gray School of Theology has a huge series just on this one topic of typology. Typology, some people call it shadows or types. There's a lot of different ways you can call it allegory. But it's, it's two things. It's prophecy embedded by God into literal history. So while all these things in the Old Testament, you know, with, with Joseph and his brothers and with Moses, all these things are literal stories and happened exactly the way they were written. But God was actually involved with it. And he was making it to paint a picture of something about the Messiah, either in his first coming or his second coming. And so we're going to try to look at some of those embedded prophecies into these uh, literal stories. Another way to understand it is that history operates in cycles and is destined to repeat itself. In fact, in Ecclesiastes it says that that which has been done is what will be. 
That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And so there is this other aspect of all of creation yearning for the redemption. And as we yearn for the redemption, we go through these cycles where there's a, an antichrist in each generation, they say. And there's an anointed one, a Messiah, a savior in, in each generation, but it's pointing towards an ultimate one. So there's been multiple messiahs, multiple redeemers. A messiah just mean, in Hebrew means anointed one. So anyone that's had the olive oil poured over their head, they're considered an anointed one. So Aaron was one. Isaiah calls King Cyrus a Messiah. These are cyclical. Things repeat and, and different manifestations come out. And even Paul says that the, that the spirit of the Antichrist was even there at, at his time. Um, and I think there's been many spirits of the Antichrist that come through the Old Testament as well as the New. So we'll step through some of those. This is going to be kind of a different class for me because we're going to try to cover a large swath of Scripture. But I'll be paraphrasing as we go, not reading the whole thing. But we'll see how it goes. Most Christians look at the first and second coming of Christ in what we call the suffering servant side and the conquering king side. As Jews read the Old Testament and interpret it, they see the same thing, but they, they actually personified the two characteristics. And they call the first one, the suffering servant one, Messiah, son of Joseph. And they call the conquering king one, Messiah, son of David. Now, son of is an important term to, for us to wrap our minds around as a first century Jew would. So in a Greek mind, a son of just means that somebody begat you biologically. But son of can also mean in the similitude of, like coming after the similitude of this person. And so just like a son is after the similitude of his father. So that's kind of another way of understanding son of. So they, they come up with this concept called Messiah, son of Joseph, the, the Messiah that will come after the similitude of Joseph. And this is Joseph and, and the coat of many colors. Joseph is who we're talking about. And that's Jacob, his father. So his, his name was Joseph, son of Jacob. And we find that Christ, his dad was Joseph, son of Jacob. And I think that's really interesting because the Jews were expecting this Messiah after the similitude of Joseph to come. And, and God orchestrated it to where Jesus' earthly father was not just Joseph, but Joseph, son of Jacob, which is really neat. Before we go there, let's go to Ezekiel 37. And we'll, we'll just go through a few of these verses and, and just kind of see what we can see here as far as typology about the Messiah, especially his first coming. So in uh, chapter 37, we're talking about Jacob. In verse 2, it says, This is the ge generation of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years, was feeding the flock with his brothers. Genesis chapter 37. Mm -hmm. So it says, This is the, the generations or the history of Jacob. And then it just says, Joseph, being 17 years old. Typically, when we get to that word generations in the Hebrew, it's toldot. It'll say something like, these are the generations of Adam. Adam begat Seth, Seth, Seth begot Enos, Enos begot, and it would list their whole lineage. But here, even though Jacob has 11 other sons, it says these are the generations of Jacob and only mentions Joseph, which is uh, kind of neat. But we're introduced to this Joseph character who is exalted and loved by his father a lot more than the other brothers. Now, the other brothers are the 12 tribes, the head of the 12 tribes, Reuben, Gad, Simeon, all of them. And Joseph begins to have these dreams of all of them bowing to him, which is really ironic because Christ was bowed to as well. Um, but this is the neat thing. When we, when we jump down to uh, verse 12 of 37, it says, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your, your brothers feeding the flocks in Shechem? 
Come and I will send you to them. So he said, Here am I. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring me word again. So he sent him out to the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. So all the father wants to do is check on how the brothers are doing. You know, that's this concept. The father sends the son to check on the brothers. And so what I'm trying to introduce you to as well is linking things thematically in the text. So there's this theme all throughout the Torah of the younger son getting the blessing over the, fa- the older son. It happens with Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel. It's a theme throughout Ish- Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, this is another theme of the father sending the son to check on the brothers. And we'll see what happens when they, whenever they get there. Now in verse 18 it says, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said, here comes this dreamer of dreams. So as soon as the son gets there from being sent from the father, he's rejected by the brothers. This is another theme of the redeemer being rejected by the brothers. When Moses perhaps would have redeemed Israel out of Egypt, they said to him, oh, you're going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian. And they reject Moses, the redeemer. And the second they reject him, he flees to Midian to the Gentiles for a period of time. So he's separated from the brothers for a period of time. So we see the same thing is going to happen to Joseph. So at this moment, they, they, they think about killing him. And then they say, no, let's throw him in this pit. And we're going to act like we killed him. We're going to dip his robe in blood. We're going to tell the father that he's dead. So on a non-literal level, he actually is dead. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that even Isaac was figuratively dead after Abraham would have sacrificed him, to look at it figuratively like that. So he gets thrown in this pit. And then they they bring him out of the pit and they give him to the Gentiles. I mean, we can see kind of the story of this time of the Gentiles woven into this. And, and then at the end of verse, uh, end of chapter 37, it just says that Jacob was mourning. He refused to be comforted. And there Joseph is in Egypt. And then the Torah takes a weird pause. And, any, and I found that any time that the text takes a weird pause and starts telling another story, then it's trying to say, look deeper here. There's something going on, you know, that's painting a picture. So in the whole of chapter 38, which there's no chapter dividers in the original Hebrew. So when you were reading this and you come to this interruption in the story it's really kind of takes you by surprise I would say without the chapter markers but you can still see it with them but then we have the story of Judah and Tamar while Judah was supposed to have given the second son of his to Tamar for wife because of the Leverite marriage he did not because both of her previous husbands had died and I think inside he was thinking oh if I give her this next son he's gonna die too so he refuses to give her the son to marry and she dresses up like a prostitute and convinces him well, he goes into her and leaves her his signet and his staff. Well, she becomes pregnant from that interaction and it's proven that Judah is the father. And it, it, right before that, he was about to burn her and she says, well, it's whoever these belong to is the father. And he says, you are more righteous than I. And she gives birth to twins. But the one, it, it, it's, a, it's a real cool story. Let's see here. Let's go to verse 25 of chapter 38. No, let's go to 27. Now it came to pass at the time of giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was that when she was giving birth that the one put out its hand 
And the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach shall be upon you. Therefore his name was called Peretz. Now, I think it's a really cool story. It's like almost like Peretz grabbed his brother as he was about to exit the womb, pulled him back in and said, No, I'm going first, and and just burst forth on the scene, you know. And, and Peretz is in this child is in the lineage of David as well as Christ. I found this really cool quote by Rabbi Samuel Bar Nachman about 300 AD and he was uh, doing a teaching and he opened with the words from uh, Jeremiah 29:11 that say for I am mindful of the plans I have concerning you and he makes this statement as the tribes were bu- busy selling Joseph as Jacob was occupied with his mourning and Judah was taking a wife the holy one blessed be he was creating the radiance of Messiah and he he's talking about parrots being born uh, in this weird interlude period and that um, it's, it's a symbol that the Messiah is bursting forth on the scene. Now at the end of, uh, of 38, it wraps up that story and goes back to the original story that it was telling. And it talks about Joseph being in Potiphar's house and being tempted to sin, but yet without sin. He's one of the few characters in the Bible that it never really attributes a sin to him. Most everybody it shows their bad side as their good side and their good side. But Joseph is one of the characters that never really says that he did anything wrong, though that can be debated as well. Let's start in now in, in chapter 41 with this dream that Pharaoh has. So Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. It's of the fat cows and the skinny cows, the healthy grains of corn and the poor grains of corn. And Joseph interprets it to mean that there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Now, if you recall in this revelation study that we've been going through, in the end of days, in this tribulation period, the nations of the world are going to become drunk with the fornication of this harlot, this mystery Babylon, which is an economic system. And it says that the, all the urch, merchants of the earth will, will be weeping because no one will buy their stuff anymore. It provided luxury to the world and plenty for a period, but then sudden destruction. And then we have this time of tribulation after it. And it's seven years, and it's seven years in Joseph as well. So you have a seven-year time of plenty followed by a seven-year time of famine, which I think is a a picture of this plenteous, luxurious period prior to the seven-year tribulation in Revelations. And so this is what I think God is doing when he's declaring the end from the beginning. He didn't just come out right and say it, but he has these types and shadows embedded into the text. So Joseph, of course, interprets the dreams, and he becomes third in control of Egypt, which is among the Gentiles. So this period right here I would look at as the time of the Gentiles. It's when the Messiah is with the Gentiles, kind of like we have the Messiah right now. He's exiled from the Jewish people. They don't recognize him, and we're going to see that coming up. Is Joseph purposefully disguises himself from his brothers, purposefully speaks through a translator, and is kind of gruff with them at certain times. And, it, and you have to ask, why, you know, why is this the case? And I always looked at all of this like, you know, God blinded his people Israel for the sake of the Gentiles. And you can find that in Romans 11. And here you can see that the brothers are obviously blinded to the identity of Joseph. Whenever Joseph was elevated to the head of Egypt, it says he was 30 years old. And that's the same age that Christ was when he began, began his ministry. But they gave him a new name, Zaphon Hapaneus. They gave Joseph's name. And so you know, I think for all these 2,000 years, the Jews have heard the word Jesus, and it doesn't sound like a Hebrew name to them. They look at the New Testament, and it's written in Greek, not Hebrew. It's in a translation.
redemption. And so these are kind of the things I think that the story of Joseph is alluding to, is that the Jews will be blinded and it will be hidden from them till the time that Joseph or Christ reveals himself to his brothers. So he plays these tricks on the brothers, sends them back with food. Finally, he wants to see his younger brother, Benjamin. Benjamin and Joseph are both from Rachel, Rachel, which Rachel in Hebrew means a ewe, a female sheep, E-W-E, and she dies in Bethlehem. Well, he wants to see Benjamin really badly, so, but Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go because he, she, he's the last survivor of Rachel's lineage. And so Judah actually puts up a bond to Jacob for Benjamin and say, saying, let the lad go with us, and if he doesn't come back, it'll be on my head. And this is a cool prophecy as well because when the ten northern tribes were exiled by the king of Assyria and they were lost and assimilated into Gentiles, the only two tribes that were left was Benjamin and Judah. And Judah protected Benjamin, even to the extent that in the first century, there was only Jews and Benjamites in the land of Israel. The Samaritans were half-breeds of Assyrian and the ten northern tribes. So I think that's a cool prophecy that was embedded in the story that Judah would take care of Benjamin and they would outlast this exile that happened to the ten northern tribes. At some point, Joseph casts everyone out of his room. I'm trying to 45 verse 1, is that it? Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who, who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, I found a cool rabbinic commentary on that, that it says that no one stood with him, and he made himself known to his brothers. It, sa- it, he, it says that he showed them their, his circumcision which proved that he was their brother because they wouldn't have believed him unless they saw the marks in his flesh, the cuts in his flesh. And we see the same thing in Zechariah chapter 12 when it says, and they will look upon me whom they pierced and mourn as one mourns for his only son. So uh, when the Jews see the marks in his flesh, they they realize that he's their brother. And then there's much crying that happens afterwards, which the same thing happens in, in Zechariah chapter 12 which is really cool. And Joseph eventually tells his brothers, you know, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good so that he can save many people alive. So Joseph was a savior of the Jewish people in this story. They look at this suffering servant side, the one who dies is thrown in the pit and then is elevated among the Gentiles for a period. They give him this title of Messiah, son of Joseph. It's just a character. It's not two separate messiahs, but it's a way to look at it. And even at the beginning of chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob gets all his sons together and says, gather together that I might tell you what will befall you in the last days. So we see see here in the very first book of the Bible, that's the first time the last days actually occurs, that he's already going to be declaring the last days to his sons the 12 tribes and you can read that on your own just a admonition and kind of a prophecy for each of the tribes so now let's go we talked about uh, judah and benjamin so other anointed ones and redeemers so moses aaron joshua king cyrus i like moses and joshua because moses was the redeemer and he had to he couldn't complete the redemption he had to have a joshua do it and joshua is the same name as jesus in in the new testament and so it's this picture of moses was raised up but he didn't complete the the redemption in his first advent he he had joshua complete it at the next time around so i think that's really cool so then we have messiah son of david so let's go to first samuel 16 real quick it's actually 17 sorry so this is a story of david and goliath as most of us are familiar with let's let's start down in uh, verse 12 
Let's actually go to 17, 17, 17. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers in the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their household, and see how your brothers fare, and bring me back news of them. Does that sound familiar? Same thing happened with Joseph. Jacob sends Joseph to check on the brothers in Shechem, and they get, he gets there and they reject him. Same thing here is Jesse is sending David out to see the welfare of the brothers and let's see if they reject him as well. I think we have to skip down to verse 28. Now Eliav, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliav's anger was aroused against David and said, Why did you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the pride and insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is, this, is there not a cause? So they're sitting there, and, and he doesn't have a reason to be yelled at like this, but the brother rejects him. So I think that's a, a cool thematic link between the two stories of, of each. So this is the Messiah after the similitude of David. Christ is going to come back prior to the millennial kingdom, and he's going to be like the sheriff who cleans up the town. Well, David was exactly this. They were surrounded by enemies on all sides. King Saul had disobeyed to the point to where he let Amalek live. He let, the, he let a lot of the Philistines live. And now they're surrounded on all sides by enemies. But David comes in and he makes war with them and cleans up Israel, basically. And by the time that the son of David, Solomon, comes to power, there's peace on all sides, it says. And so that's kind of a picture of the Messianic era. David was such a warrior that God said, you can design the temple, but you're not going to be the one building it. Your son will be the one building it. Now, on the literal level, that was talking about Solomon. But in a typology level, it's talking about a different son of David who's going to rebuild the temple in the Messianic era. There will be a temple prior to the Messianic era because we know in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the, the son of perdition will stand in the temple of God saying that he is God. And so there will be a temple built, but then it will either be rebuilt or some Jews believe that the heavenly temple will kind of interlock with the earthly temple. Who knows how that will happen? But Christ will rebuild the temple of the of the messianic era and he will be the prince and the and the priest in there. There's so much typology with David how he even goes to the Gentiles for a period of time after he's rejected. He's running from Saul. He makes himself mad and goes and lives with the Philistines for a period of time until finally even though he's anointed king his coronation doesn't take place until later and he was very patient in waiting for it. Yeah, I like this. This is a quote from the Talmud where these two rab or this rabbi was comparing two verses and was a little confused about it. It says, It is written, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. But elsewhere it is written, Behold, thy king comes unto you lowly and riding on a donkey. And so the rabbi makes the statement, If they are of merit, he will come with the clouds of heaven, and if not, lowly riding on a donkey. When I talk with the Jewish people who don't believe in, in Christ, I see a lot of the mindset of it's got to be either or. So that he's basically saying, you know, if we're worthy, then he'll come on the clouds of heaven. But if we're not worthy, then he'll come lowly on a donkey. But I, we know that all prophecy from God has to come true. So if you have two prophecies, even though we can't reconcile them somehow, they both have to come true. That's the definition of a prophecy, that a true prophecy is that it comes true. So he's got to come both on the clouds of heaven and he's got to come lowly riding on a donkey. But it is hard to, just looking at that at first glance, you're like, you know, is he coming, you know, is he a king or is he a slave? Which one is it? And it's both. Uh, David means beloved in Hebrew. 
I think it would be cool to live in a in a society that we name people words that we actually use. You know, I mean, there's a few uh, Grace and Autumn, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, but in, in all the people's names in in Hebrew are words they would use in everyday speech. If you were calling Absalom, you'd say, "Come here, uh, Father of Peace, of Shalom." Father of peace, and if you're calling David, you'll be saying, "Come here, beloved." You know that's what in your language that's what it is. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel 36 real quick, 37, because I think there's something really interesting there. Yeah, Ezekiel 37:24. Now Ezekiel's written way after the life of David, you know, but he gives this statement. He says, "David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd." And they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And then he says, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David will be their prince forever. So he's saying David is going to be their prince, and David is going to rule over his people forever. And and you have to take this as either is a shadow, a type, because it's Christ that's going to reign. There was a strain of Christianity for a while there that said, well, Christ is going to reign over the church and David's going to reign over Israel. But I think most have come to the conclusion that this is a typology verse that is talking about the, the Messiah after the similitude of David, who's going to rule over them and be prince forever and ever. Now, when Jesus was baptized and, it's, and the voice came from heaven, which was probably in Hebrew, it said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you're listening to that in Hebrew, you could interpret it as, This is David, my son, in whom I am well pleased. I think it's a cool link that David is prophesied to rule over his people Israel forever, and Christ there is called beloved or called David at the baptismal, which is really neat. If there's types and shadows of, of the Messiah, maybe there's types and shadows of the false Messiah as well, that were God declaring the events and revelations all the way from the beginning. So in Leviticus 24.10 is one of these weird interruptions that I was talking about that happened in the Torah from time to time. So from 24.1 all the way to 24.9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command that you bring the oil pressed of olives to make the lamps burn continually outside the tabernacle. And it's just giving all these statutes about the tabernacle. But then in the verse 10, it takes this weird stop and just starts telling the story. It says, Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So you have two people fighting. You have a true Israelite, and then you have this half-breed, half-Egyptian Israelite who's fight, they're fighting together in the camp. And then it says... And the, in verse 11, And the Israelites' woman's son blasphemed the name of Yahweh and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Divri, of the tribe of Dan. So the mother's name was Shelomith, which means peaceable, like a fake peace almost, just like I'm peaceable on the outside. And her mother's name was Divri, Dabri, which means wordy, like just 
pompous words of fake peace. Kind of, it's, it's an ironic picture. And he's from the tribe of Dan, which in Revelations we know that Dan is omitted from the list of tribes there. And they put him in custody that they might know from the mind of the Lord what should happen to him. And the, and the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, and let all who heard him curse lay their hands on his head, and the congregation shall stone him. You know, when they stone somebody, they'd bury you up to your head, and then the, your head's just sticking out of the ground, and it's more efficient. <laughs> you don't have to bury them. And then afterwards, there's a pile of stones, and it's kind of a reminder for anybody that walks by, you know, that this person was killed for uh, that reason. But it's ironic that he's killed with a head wound. Now, uh, let's go to Revelations 13. There's so much to go through, and you almost have to just read the text of the Old Testament and kind of with this stuff in mind, and, and you'll, this stuff will pop out at you. I'm just, gonna, I'm just giving you a few little ones that are cool that I've found and give you another layer of how to read the text. So in Revelation 13, verse 6, is talking about the beast. This is the real Antichrist who all these shadow Antichrists are pointing to. And it says in verse 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, the name Yahweh, and to blaspheme his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Which is cool. It mentions tabernacle right there. And right before the story of the Israelite half-breed, it talks about the tabernacle. So he's blaspheming the name, just like the guy in Leviticus did. Back to 1 Samuel 17, the story of Goliath. Goliath is actually a shadow of the false messiah as well, the Antichrist. He's defying the armies of Israel. He dies with a head wound, just like the beast dies in Revelation. And it's ironic, too, in verse 4, 5, and 6, it talks about he was six cubits and a span. So six cubits, his spearhead was 600 shekels. And Second Samuel, we know that, that Goliath's brother had six fingers on each hand, which there's a lot of sixes attributed with this guy, you know. And so I think it's a cool shadow that God's embedded in the text. Yeah, Second Samuel 21:18 is where it tells us about Goliath's brother who had the six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Other false messiahs include Pharaoh of Egypt where you have Moses and Aaron are the two witnesses calling down plagues in the sight of the beast, which is what happens in Revelation. Nimrod, who built, built Babel, is a false messiah of a sort. Absalom, who usurps the kingdom from David, who rightfully is the ruler. Haman, who in the book of Esther tried to kill all the Jews. Antiochus Epiphanes, he's written about in, in probably other literature, but specifically the book of Maccabees, where he went into the temple and, and made a statue of Zeus there and slaughtered a pig on the altar, which is what the false prophet is going to do, make a statue speak in the Holy of Holies. And then the king of Assyria is also a typology of the false messiah. In Micah chapter 4, Dr. Anderson brings out this uh, king of Assyria is personified as a future person that's going to come, which is really, really neat. The tabernacle in the throne room. So, yeah, when Moses saw, you know, God declaring the end from the beginning, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he saw the throne room while he was up there for 40 days. And he built a pattern of it here on earth so that God's presence, his Shekinah, Shekinah glory, would, uh, would live there. And so we have the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the mercy seat. And it's called a seat because that's actually his throne or a representation of his throne. We have the altar of incense, which is described in Revelation as the prayers of the saints that goes up right before the throne. 
The table of showbread, I believe, is Christ's throne. He's the living bread. And then we have the seven spirits of God represented through the seven-branch candlestick of the menorah. So everything you read about in Ezekiel and Revelation about the throne room, you can actually come and see it here. In fact, before the advent of Christianity, the Jews were compiling their canon of the Old Testament, of their Tanakh, and they were debating not including Ezekiel in it because there was a strain of Judaism that had got into what they called throne room worship based on Ezekiel chapter 1, 2, and 3, and they, they were thinking it would mislead them. They eventually let Ezekiel into the canon, and for good reason. I think it's really neat that Moses had built this remarkable replica of, of something in the heavens, you know. And uh, one day we'll get to see the real thing. One thing that's cool is the Holy of Holies in the back there is 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It's a perfect cube. And when we read about New Jerusalem, it's a perfect cube as well. And so it's like New Jerusalem is the throne room and, and it's the Holy of Holies, the whole thing. It says there is no temple in the New Jerusalem because the Lord is there and he is the temple. And so I think that's really neat. I did want to show this whenever David designs the first temple. He's taking something of the tabernacle and he's expanding on it. He actually makes it into, into a human figure. If you've ever studied the, tab the temple that David designed, as opposed to the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, I mean, even to where he has five lavers on each hand for five fingers, the lavers was where you'd wash your hands, so of course that would be the hands. You had the two posts, Jachin and Boaz, they each had a name. In fact, David prays at one time in the psalm saying, let me be a pillar in your temple, O Lord. And then the, with the mind being the holy of holies, I, I think that's really neat how, and then Paul comes in the New Testament and says, you are the temple of God. It is a body. It is a, that's what it's pointing at. And I think David saw it and built this design based on that knowledge that God's ultimate place he wants to dwell is in our minds and in our hearts. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 37. We'll just go through the dry bones thing. There's, like I said, the way Ezekiel works from 36 on is chapter 36 and 37 are regarding the gathering back of the Jews out of the nations back into the land. Then Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the war of Gog and Magog, also known as Armageddon. And then Ezekiel 40 through the end of Ezekiel is the Messianic era, the Millennial Kingdom. And so as you get time and you read through that, it's highly chronological in my opinion. But I think that Ezekiel 37 kind of gives us that place that we can actually look and say, we can find ourselves back on the prophetical timeline now. Because during the time of the Gentiles, there was nothing happening with prophecy except for that Gentiles were believing in the gospel and being grafted into Israel. But with the Jews returning to the land, it actually puts us into a, a position to be able to say, yeah, we're back on the prophetic timeline. In chapter 37, it says, And the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of Adam, can these bones live? So I answered and said, O Lord, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, and flesh on you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and then you will know that I am Adonai. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, suddenly a great rattling of the bones, and they came together bone to bone. And let's skip down to verse 11. It says, 
And then he said to me, Son of Adam, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry and our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and I have brought you from your graves. I will put my spirit inside of you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And then he goes into this cool prophecy, and he says, As for you, son of Adam, take a stick, this is verse 16, and write for yourself on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them in one another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And he goes on to say in verse 22 that I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them, and they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. And then it goes into the prophecy of David that will rule over them. And it says in verse 27, And my tabernacle will also be among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that the Lord sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. I think this is pretty clear of what's happening is that God in 70 AD scattered the Jewish people one last time, I hope, but it could happen again, but it's an exile and it's the longest exile that we have. They were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. And there was a prophecy through Jeremiah that I will return you to the land of Israel and you'll, you'll have another shot there. And then after Christ ascended, the Romans came in and exiled all of them to all the four corners of the earth. One more verse, Psalm 83. So once the, the, the Jews start coming into the land, the nations around them start doing something that's happened over and over again. When Nehemiah came in and all the Arabs came around and started trying to disrupt the work of the temple, we have a prophecy about it in Psalm 83, verse 1. It says, Do not keep silent, O God, and do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their, your, their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. They have consulted together with one consent, and they form a confederacy against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, which are Arab descendants, Midian and Sisera and all these nations. And that's what we see, I think, happening in the UN and stuff today. I mean, you see all the nations just ganging up on Israel. When Israel's a democracy, you can be homosexual in Israel. You can be a woman pilot in Israel. You can do all these things, but yet no one condemns what's you know happening in Syria to the degree that they're condemning Israel. It just blows my mind. But I think this is that crafty consult, crafty council that calls it, that they're making a deal with the devil and saying, come let us cut off the name of Israel that they be remembered no more. But we know how it ends and that the Lord will have the last laugh. I love looking at the Bible through t- typological pictures and seeing what more I can see about the events of the New Testament. You know, they say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. There's a rabbi that says that everything that was supposed to be recorded was recorded from Genesis to Deuteronomy, but it was recorded in a hidden level that we needed prophets and wise men, and ultimately the New Testament, to bring out these ideas that are actually in the text. If I want to learn about Mystery Babylon, maybe I should go research the first Babylon in the Tower of Babel.
Bible, and I'll see these pictures that explain more about these other end-time events. Something that gets me excited. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, let's pray, say a prayer, and we'll call it quits. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your ability to stand outside of time and make amazing prophecies and descriptions about future events, even though they haven't happened. And how you're intimately involved with each and every one of our lives. And uh, maybe you're weaving prophecy somehow into our lives as we walk this earth. And we, may we glorify you as we, as we continue through this road of life. And we bless you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.